Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Kia ora koutou, welcome to Circuit Cast. Uh, we are here in Auckland, Tamaki Makaro, at uh, the lovely Pa Homestead, home of the Wallace Trust Art Collection. With me here is artist and cinematographer Marty Gunn. Kia ora, Marty. Kia ora. You've got your work here, Common Ground, on at the moment. But I really wanted to start by talking a, a, about your, your professional practice that goes back, gosh, 70s, 80s as a cinematographer and working alongside a great many wonderful directors and, and it sounds like some amazing experiences. I wondered about what your, your touchstones have sort of been over, over that time. Uh, well, I started as a stills photographer when I was really young, actually, which, you know, just because I was lucky to be given cameras at an early age. So when I was working at Crackham, it was the same year as Bastion Point, and I went to university. The Auckland University magazine, student yeah, magazine. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I went um, up to Bastion Point, so that was 1978. I went to university when I was really young, and I've returned now. But it seems really important to be at Bastion Point, which was about land. That would have been a commons at one point. Yeah. And so looking back, I can see these kind of various things in my life professionally. I always had one foot in the mainstream, which was my training ground, and a kind of a battleground too. And then the fringe, music videos and working with artists, very low budget or no budget work. You did a 3Ds video I saw for I the music hounds yeah. out there. That was one of my favourite things. There were not a lot of women I would have thought working in cinematography or maybe even other positions in the film industry. When I in started the at the bottom of the camera department, as a sort of trainee clapper loader, there was already a woman who was further along in the camera assistant experience, but she left to become a firewoman, and then there was nobody. There had been women camera operators and women doing, such as Margaret Moth, doing her current affairs and news uh, shooting. But yeah, what I was doing, I had no role model for it. And it was, I think I'd been in the industry for about 20 years before I met my first woman cinematographer. Right, right. So it was a lone um, kind of battle. And that's taught me a lot, really, about rediscovering how to work with people, you know, how to give people a, a sort of a hand over rather than up. I see it that we're kind of in a sense, on either sides of the riverbank, when you're looking at other, someone's over there, they're other. Right. And I think the mainstream or people in power have to learn how to give a hand out and yoink people over to the solid ground where they're at somehow. Right. It's a kind of generous attitude, I suppose, to have. But it's difficult in an industry with very high stakes, mm. fame and fortune, and the opposite is penury and infamy. It sounds like you've worked a, with a, a, a quite a spread of people, people like Meritometer and Chris Krause even, I think, maybe. Yes, yeah. They, mm-hmm. You know, they're not figures of the mainstream, one would say. No, 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 no. No, that's right. Merita, I worked with her a few times. I remember her making a huge impact on me physically to do with her level of power confidence. And I think the reason why she chose to work with me was because she was... Māori clearly, but a feminist. Right. And we talked at length at times when we would be driving long distances, we would talk at length about that. And I think things have changed somewhat, but not a lot, to be honest. Luckily, people can pick up a camera and go again, as they could back in really the 70s, people were able to do that. Alternative cinema, there was a lot of sort of cranky old bolexes lying around and a few hand-driven pick sinks and whatnot. Right. TVNZ would process our film for free. And now we're back to that freedom again, you know, with 
little SD cards to record onto and people can edit at home and whatnot. It's empowering. Yes. But it doesn't really act against the hegemony of the of men who are still got the purse strings in the mainstream industry. Now Common Ground touches on both um, your Scottish ancestry and the, the land clearances there which we'll come to and, and also the Māori experience and I, it sounds like your journey towards this also came into your experience with documentary filmmaking in the, the far north and Māori communities. I wondered if you could introduce how you sort of became more involved in I guess the land movement in a way. It must have been something subconscious or conscious, who knows, but as a trainee technician when Don Selwyn started his film school down here, Waitaro, in the Freemans Bay Community Centre, ah, yes. all those people became my friends. And we, we were united in a way I think we had very similar priorities. It was very relationship-based and that we would hang out together, we'd eat together. It was a wonderful time in a sense and I felt an alignment with values. I remember taking a copy of Peter Watkins' Culloden down to Waitaro and um, Don Selwyn would say to me, you know, you support our kaupapa, we support yours. And those moments are really, they fill you up because you have to, if you're a sort of a an activist and someone who is pioneering, you have to be pretty strong and, and nobody's that strong. I mean, we all need to be, you know, occasionally kind of bolstered or mm. are reminded that other people are out there on our wavelength. But if you were in the, in the far north, for example, I would imagine not only are you sort of on an outsider as a woman uh, with the camera, but also within a Māori community. How, how was that as an experience? I was making a music video for Lips and made a, a music video for Big Belly Woman in, in the Hokianga. The vocalists, Vera, her son was killed in a car accident that night. And when you share experience with people, when it's not just an academic exercise or a nice idea, when you're in a place with people, that's when things happen that seem to be on the face of it, maybe domestic or well, certainly with Vera Sundes, that was something that was epic. And there we were, Karen already had had a fire at her place that day. There was a whole lot going on. And we were together as a group. And at times like that, what becomes important really is shared priorities, a way of being in the world, which is kind of encouraging and mutually supportive. I think then really I was kind of accepted into part of the Māori world. I don't know, I yeah. felt comfortable, just very comfortable. I still do, but I, I mean, I know that there is, if people don't believe in inverse racism, they, they say that if you're white, you, racism doesn't affect you because you're so privileged. And that's an interesting discussion to be had, I think, because certainly when you're a woman fighting against the odds, you don't feel privileged. I feel mm. more privileged now than I ever have. Mm. But that's not how I felt in my life when you've been squatting and... Right. <laughs> you know, up against it in different ways, you know. Yeah, so it's, it's not always easy, but I like to have those difficult conversations because I think mm. we need to. I think you co-produced it. There's a documentary about Lake Omapere, is that Yes, right? it was called Restoring the Modi of Lake Omapere. And um, that happened because Karen was the keyboard player in Big Belly Woman. And she's a kind of an enthusiast. So she's on the phone saying... Um, the lake's polluted, it's polluting our river, we've got to make a documentary and we've got to make it now. So um, that's kind of how that happened. And I'd never produced anything really formally in my life. Simon Marler was a co-producer, he had worked in production. 
not in the documentary though, I don't think. Mm. Karen had just wanted to do film, but had always done music. So every, all of us were doing jobs that we'd never, well, we were stepping up. And that gave me a, a, a real look into how it could be if I did my own work, I think. And now we are here, there's the word artist as well as cinematographer, and I think you've been doing an MFA as well. Uh, um, that was an MPhil, and I'm, I've started my PhD at Elam. Right. In the architecture school. Right. How are you finding that transition into the heady world of the visual arts? If I think about it, I feel nervous, I suppose, because it's unknown and I, I know that people, anything that has a hierarchy attached to it or that can be elitist, to me it just rings warning bells because I know that that way of working, which I think has been somehow um, magnified with neoliberalism yes. um, and supported by, I suppose, capitalism and some would say that kind of cut and thrust of competition, I feel strongly that we have to relearn how to be cooperative. And it does take relearning because we're so hardwired to compete. And it's a sort of a consciousness and awareness yes. of being inclusive, whereas our feeling is, oh, you know, there's not room for two of us necessarily, and so, you know, I might lose this contest. Or so, so why do it? Why, why, why play the game and, and do the academic side? And we're not in a great time necessarily to do with funding um, of feature-length documentaries. Right. I mean, Māori TV was just phenomenal. There's a purse strings problem. I sort of feel that we almost need a return to some kind of a fee system, like we had the broadcasting fee, and maybe work in some in ways they still do in parts of Europe. I'm not sure that that's the only way to go, but certainly having been affected by television and the loss of the kind of concept of public service or any kind of service really, mm. that's really been damaging to my career, I have to say, because when I was moving, shorting, shooting lots of short films and then the feature that you mentioned with Chris Krauss and another one here, the natural progression would have been into doing TV drama. Yes. And just at that time, there was a huge gap, several years, where they didn't make any. And then in that interim, I kind of thought, well, I'm better working in the factual realm anyway. And I, I'm really happy working with other people's ideas. Returning to university was a good thing for me to do because it coincided with a time when well-beings is at AUT. So yes. I've been really very, very lucky to be working with Welby, who has a knack for empowerment is one of those words that makes it seem as though he's given me something and now I'm kind of, you know, all powerful. But it's just to do with finding something that's yours. Yes, but at the same time, I mean, we have uh, a, a two-screen work here at the Pa Homestead, but you could be reaching far more people on Māori television. Yes, that's it. true. That's a very good point. I think the fact that it's a different aspect ratio, instead of 16 by 9, it's 48 by 9. Yeah. The stories could sit alone, but it's the beginning of me stepping away from this very um, standard aspect ratio of the screen and moving more into an area where it could be in a museum or a gallery or community space um, and be working with the community to tell stories in that way. It's the beginning of me moving into an immersive world. I mean, the way that this was screened, that Common Ground is screened, um, to, to supposedly give the viewer a sense that they might be meeting these people in their landscape. We've got one large screen with, the, I guess, what one would call the central 
documentary, as it were, with, with the, the interviews and the wire and the landscape. You've also got a panorama-shaped long screen, which is quite unusual uh, to one side on another wall. Yes. When it initially screened, there were four walls. So the stories are six stories, three Māori, three from Highlands of Scotland. They don't call themselves Highlanders, they call themselves Gales from Gaelic. So these stories were t- being told alternatively, as you would find in a porphyry. I mean, some marae, they have yes. all stories told from one side and all from the other side. But I've gone with the alternate, just so that walkers, you know, people are coming into the gallery, you know, they know what's going on before they decide to leave. And then the long screens were the same, alternating between Scotland and up mm. in the Hokianga. I think we should tell people a little bit more about the film, actually, in terms of why you brought these two elements together. And I guess that okay. sort of completes your journey, maybe a little bit, in terms of your Scottish ancestry. Well, it's true. I was in Scotland in 2012 and was starting to read about, well, to think about what I might do for my master's project, I suppose. And I met an elderly activist who'd written a book called Stolen Land, Stolen Lives, by Shirley Ann Hardy. And I realised then that this was very important because the loss of access to land is causing poverty. And it coincided with me discovering another book, Alistair McIntosh, Soil and Soul. And he is a radical human ecologist. He calls himself a pre-modern thinker, and he is looking at indigenous philosophy, indigenous worldviews, and indigenous ways of being in the world. And he talks about a sort of a Celtic idea of trinity and the relationship between people, land, or the environment, and the unseen realm. Um, and I just discovered that in my own genealogy, in my own whakapapa, that my father's people had had their land taken from them during the clearances and uh, many of them were kind of left or went to the coast or went to the cities to sort of become the new proletariat. So they were miners and, and in a poor house, very, very, very poverty stricken. So when you don't have access to land, that's your, how can you put food on the table if you can't grow it or, right. or swap it? And, you know, in a way it's me finding a way to survive in the world where I can... I've always been a researcher, to be honest, just sort of quietly. And now it kind of gives me a framework and allows me to do that. I've got, I'm a, you know, I'm reading, but yes, I'm researching. Now, who are your subjects in, in, in Common Ground? You say there's three stories from Scotland, three from here. Yes, Eddie Harpity Morgan, she was in restoring the Māori of Lake Ormāpere. She had done a lot of research about the lake. She should get an honorary PhD, really. And a, a deep thinker. But I think when she agrees to do something, if she can see worth in it, then she will do it. So she's the lady in the, in the yellow swan dry talking about how her mother addresses the mountain every day. Yes. Norpera was also in, in our lake or Māpere doko, the carver. He was telling a lot of stories, really, about um, landmarks in Rawani, like a little building there was actually the jail house. Stories again about land being stolen really, people being told, well, you can go to the gum fields or you can go to prison, but whatever you do, we're going to take your land anyway. And then Reva, I just kind of happened on her one day and she's such an astonishing person doing her weaving and talking about her uncle. So they're all in my circle because since I started going up to Rawani in 2005 to do the doko, 
I've been going up now. That's this is the twelfth year that I've yeah, been going so up. Yeah, so it's been quite a long, long. It has. Yeah, friendships and relationships. It has. Yeah. And yeah. I've tried to tell the story about the Scottish people a bit more quickly, I suppose. In two thousand and twelve, when I got my driving job in Scotland, that allowed me to go up to the far north and also to a clan gun society gathering. I realised what was going on with the clan societies and how, again, it's another hierarchy for those who fetishise such, such things. And there was a gentleman there who wanted and, and has now become chief. We were being taught about the clearances into such a way that it could be just tucked away again on a shelf and forgotten about. But at that gathering I met a woman because he was saying to me that, no, the guns didn't speak garlic. And there was a woman who stood and said, well, I'm a gun and I speak gun. And so did my grandmother and da-da-da-da-da. So I took down her email address and then contacted her again. But there's powerful stories there of, you know, in, the, in, the, in Common Ground in the, in the film around, you know, looking at forests that are, you know, owned by footballers. And oh, George so Gunn. He is, I just happened upon him. When I came home to New Zealand after that visiting, thinking, oh, I can't get what I want from the society anymore. They don't want to know the true history or they won't help, they're not an ally as far as my hunt goes for what mm. really went on. So I just emailed, I just found his name on the internet and emailed him and he became my teacher, read this, read that, I never met him. Mm. And then when we bowled up and said, well George, do you mind if we film you? And he was fantastic. Mm. How he can encapsulate all of that because he's a writer. And the last one, I was researching my dad's family tree, trying to f find out, you know, where they were living before the clearances. Neil McLeod was just at the Dunbeath Heritage Centre, and when I heard his voice and his accent, and I could feel how kind of internal and restrained he is, mm. I just asked if I could film him, and so I only knew him for two minutes, really. Incredibly generous. Some, but people need to tell stories. It's a sort of healing thing, I think. So common ground. The title sort of answers my question a little bit. But I'm wondering what you 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 would hope that bringing the Māori and the Scottish stories together will do for for people encountering it here at the Pa Homestead or, or wherever else. I'm really concerned that we cease this kind of superficial black and white thinking because it's hugely problematic. And if people can be satisfied with a, with some kind of a an explanation which means these people are good and those people are bad and it revolves around colour somehow, that's really problematic for me mm. because I, I feel that at one point we were all connected to a place somewhere but many of us have forgotten that or it hasn't been mentioned or it's been hidden. Māori are right still in the middle of it. We're supposed to be post-colonial, I don't really get that. Um, and yes. there's a lot of pain, and it's understandable. A lot of people um, who are Scottish have got big blanks in their, in their family histories. There's a lot of shame there about, oh, oh that was really um, careless, I lost my culture. I lost my language. Yeah. I don't really know where I'm from. So there's two things there. People start to realise that the stories of the Māori that live next door or whoever are, are similar to the ones of their ancestors, but there's also kind of, well, do I know my ancestors' stories? It's easy for European stories to become regurgitated, stylized ideas of goodies and baddies and all of that because we don't know our stories. Mm. And if we were reconnected to them more, I think we'd be more compassionate and just more authentic. You mentioned um, in some writing around here the sort of interest in realising you even used that word, relational, which is, is, is quite a, a buzzword in terms of art practice. And, is it? Well, I don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful word, but you know, it signifies that the art is 
as much about relationships as, say, objects. Is that, is that the case for you? Is that how you see the, the art practice in a way? It is for me. Could I call myself a documentary maker? Some people would probably call me that. That'd be fine. That's probably not all I am, but I do make a lot of docos and or work on a lot of docos. And um, it's all about relationship. And you can arrive and sort of park on the footpath and come steaming in with your gun, you know, all guns blazing and expect people to do your will and then drive off again. But you go back to that place, you're not going to have a relationship. Mm. We need to learn how to reconnect. We really have forgotten. We really have forgotten and we're also terrified. There's a whole lot of cliches about stay away from your neighbours or the public, oh, the public, well, you wouldn't want to go there. And It's incredible. What I noticed with Common Ground is once people had been in there watching it together as a group in chairs swivelling around or wandering about, this is in the first showing of the four screens, right. when they came out, I had a conversation pit. Not that I constructed it because I knew that I needed one, it was just by chance, and boy, we really needed it. People, a lot of people were weeping. It was totally irrelevant whether they had Māori or Scottish blood. People were weeping about Croatia. What musicians needed to talk about the pentatonic scale and the, you know, some of the singing in Scotland. It was mind-boggling. Right. So I wouldn't do it again without having a real meeting. Māori Gunn, thank you for joining us on Circuitcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Kia ora. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Circuitcast is brought to us with the help of Create New Zealand. Uh, more from us at circuit.org.nz. Circuit Cast is brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand, with music by Heat Pump. Follow Circuit Cast on iTunes. For more information, see circuit.org.nz.